Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. This episode has been brought to you by the Wine to Wine Business Forum 2022. This year will mark the ninth edition of the forum to be held on November 7th and 8th of 2022 in Verona, Italy. This year will be an exclusively in-person edition. The main theme of the event will be all-round wine communication. Tickets are on sale now, so for more information, please visit us at winetowine.net. Thanks for tuning in to Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People on the Italian Wine Podcast. I'm Steve Ray, your host, and this podcast features interviews with the people actually making a difference in the Italian wine market in America, their experiences, challenges, and personal stories. And I'll be adding a practical focus to the conversation based on my 30 years in the business. So if you're interested in not just learning how, but also how else, then this pod is for you. Hello, and welcome to this week's edition of Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People. I'm your host, Steve Ray, and uh, today I've got a special guest, someone I met in New Orleans a couple of weeks ago, who kind of sort of is in the same business, Brian Diaz. Brian, welcome to the show. Hey, Steve. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing fine. Thanks. Really enjoyed meeting you at Tales of the Cocktail in New Orleans, which was obviously a, a, a spirits-oriented show, but I met you, and you're the host of the NOLA Drinks Show with Brian Dias. You do both radio and podcast. So give us a little background on you, your history, touch on a little bit about wine and where you are with broadcasting and podcasting. Yeah, sure, Steve. So uh, as you said, the name of the show is The NOLA Drinks Show with Brian Dias, and uh, we broadcast locally on radio here in New Orleans weekly. We're on uh, Fridays at 5 p.m on a uh, AM radio station. That's still a thing these days. And uh, also we do a podcast version of the show. And essentially the podcast version of the show is everything that airs on radio plus a podcast only segment called Another Shot with Nola Drinks where we get a little deeper into the weeds sometimes on different topics that we address on the show. Our tagline is exploring the world of drinking food and culture in New Orleans and beyond. So we take a very wide stance of what that means Sometimes we just talk about drinks. Oftentimes we talk about social issues. We talk about economics of the drinks business or food business and a whole host of other things. Uh, we've been doing this for oh boy six or seven years, I think, something along those lines. And uh, yeah, we always just, it's a long format interview show where we just have a single guest or set of guests on for the entire hour. And uh, we just kind of get deep into these different topics that we cover. So what kind of prep do you do before shows? Now, you and I talked, and my procedure is to have uh, an hour conversation with somebody and then do an outline just because I'm built that way. That's the way I write. That's the way I do a lot of things. I want to be prepared, not that it's unprepared if you don't do that. How do you work? Yeah, that's a, it's a really good question, Steve. And you and I, as you mentioned, we, we, we did exactly what you just described. We talked last week for a little while. I kind of take a little bit of a different tack because we do a long form interview, as I mentioned, and it usually takes me about 75 to 90 minutes from start to finish to tape an entire episode with my guests. And that's because we have to pause for breaks for the radio portion of the show. But that also gives us time to have conversations between the lines and sort of recalibrate our conversation at times if, if needed as we go. I will give people, I actually am a staunch opponent of providing questions to people because I don't want to have a lot of this scripted. I want to be able to follow tangents. I want to be able to 
get into topics with my guests. Sometimes we just go which way the wind blows. There'll be a bit of a framework that we usually discuss before we go on the air. And then, as I mentioned, when we take breaks, we may recalibrate a little bit. But my whole thing is if when like dealing with a PR company or somebody who's arranging the interview and they'll ask for a list of questions, I will tell them if you can't send me somebody who can talk adeptly about the topic for an hour, then you're not sending me the right person. Okay. Does that make sense? So it's, it's, I, I try to not over plan. I don't provide a list of questions. As I said, it's a very general conversation uh, out of the gate. And then we sort of just let the conversation go where it needs to go because now we were kind of getting lightning in a bottle that way. Yeah, yeah. So I'm kind of caught between a rock and a hard place and I kind of lean toward the hard place. So, but that's just me. Styles are really different, Steve. I, I get all that. And for me, I, I like the improvisational uh, aspect of this. Part of this is my music background and, and such. And like you being a wine person as am I, one of the things I always enjoy challenging myself is like very often I won't taste somebody's expression, their wine or their spirit until I'm actually taping the show. Yeah, that that part's great. Yeah. I trust my palate and I kind of go with it that way. Interesting. Yeah. We don't do any product stuff here at all. Not that I'm averse to it, just we haven't done it and no tastings. And that's not what I'm interested in. I'm, the uh, intro to the podcast says something about it's not just a matter of knowing how, but what we talk about is how else. Right. Because this business is so challenging and you know that every state is different and in some places every city is different. Texas has what's called a class B license, which is like a fourth tier. And if you're in the wine industry, that'll just make you cry. Right. <laughs> Louisiana had its own challenges in getting samples through a clearing wholesaler and people that we dealt with were delightful, but you know, you learn a lot. 52 different markets, all that kind of stuff. One of the things that I very often find when people get PR training or they deal with a PR firm, they're taught what's called the two breath technique. And the two breath technique is you're going to have 15 seconds or 20 seconds to get your two key talking points in. And a lot of the training that people get and the advice they get is built around short form interview stuff, a news segment, a brief radio segment, whatever it is. And that's another reason why I don't provide questions to people is because I've had times especially with radio where there is no visual to look at, where someone will basically say what they think they need to say in five minutes or four minutes or two minutes, and then they're done. And if I kind of give them that much fodder or that much rope, they will hang themselves with it. And that's why I basically don't provide questions because I want to be able to ask them an open-ended question or ask them a question that they can kind of get into without having overthought it or you know, lean on their talking points and basically run out of gas very quickly. Okay, so let's uh, talk a little bit about structure. Uh, and how and why do you do radio plus a podcast? First of all, why do you do radio? And then the second question is, why do it plus a podcast? <laughs> right. It's, it's a great question. Uh, when, I, when I started doing this, I started uh, filling in for a friend of mine on his uh, daily radio show here in New Orleans going back several years. And uh, it's a two, it was a two-hour show every day. And, you know, that's different, multiple guests, multiple segments that needed to be filled. It was a lot of work, to be honest with you. And then when I started doing my own thing, basically, I continued on radio and, you know, podcasts are the way of the world. So it was basically, to answer your question very directly, it was very simultaneous for me. Neither existed without the other. And what I decided to do very early on in this process was... Once editing the radio broadcast where a lot of the syndicated stuff comes out of the commercial breaks, the news break, the stuff like the weather and all that stuff, uh, you know, I'm left with about 40 minutes of conversation and I wanted it to be about an hour of conversation. And I also wanted to be able to get deeper into the topics with my guests for those who wanted to hear it. And a lot of folks 
that listen to the show, the podcast version of the show specifically, about 40, 45% of my audience is not in New Orleans. They're actually around the country and around the world. It's a lot of hospitality, a lot of liquor industry, a lot of serious enthusiasts. So doing the podcast only segment afforded me the opportunity to be more technical, for example. So say if we're talking to a winemaker, we may get into their elevage and what their process is, you know, their vitification process is more deeply than I would in the first three segments with my guests that are kind of more generalist. Okay. And then here's kind of a, a, a raw question. Do you do this for money? And how is it as a, a business? Yeah, te- technically the answer is yes. <laughs> I should do that. <laughs> do go on. <laughs> the real answer, Steve, is barely. You know, it, it affords... Uh, other opportunities, you know, radio and podcasting, it's not my, this is not my only, I'll call it an advocation. It's not my only profession. And so it enhances and complements some of the other things that I do in this world. And yes, we, we do have sponsors. We do, you know, I get a little bit of money. I get a couple nickels out of this from time to time, but it's entirely sponsorship based. And one of the things that I'm very, very careful about doing or not doing is I let the editorial drive the show. So I do not allow guests to come on and tell me, you know, my wine or my whiskey is the greatest thing since sliced bread. And I got 92 points here and this, that, and the other thing. That's not what this is about. And since I also do long form interview stuff, this isn't moving from one infomercial to the next. So it's a, it's a discerning audience. I think I told you when we talked before, I'll use a different word. It's uh, people who give a damn about what you're talking about than, what it, than a broad broadcast sort of billboard approach. And that's not for every sponsor. It is for some, but it's not for everybody. Okay. So you're, you're alluding to a day job. What is it? Uh, my wife and I actually own a decorative arts and interior design company here in New Orleans that's uh, pretty successful. She's, she's the artist. I'm the I joke with her that I'm the arm candy, but I do radio, man. So <laughs> I've, used that, I've used that same line. <laughs> Somebody once said, that, well, the joke was, uh, you've got a face made for radio. Okay. Thank you very much. <laughs> and as I told you, the other one is voice for print, which I have as well. A voice for print. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> do you have different audiences? Or are there different people who are listening to radio and podcasts? I mean, yeah, very much. I think local, I mean, obviously there's the local and out of town split, which happens, you know, radio is obviously hundred percent local, whereas the podcast is about, as I said, 55, 60% local and the remaining is outside the area. I find that most of the people and like the radio station that I'm on being a small, fairly small AM radio station, they don't pay for Nielsen data and things like that. So a lot of this is looking at different metrics, but it's most of the people that listen to the show on radio are serious enthusiasts. It's on Fridays at 5 p.m. So like a lot of industry folks, of course, are working during that time. And so they don't catch it. They catch the podcast. So that's sort of why I structure it the way I do is those first four segments, the intro and the three with the featured guest first Mm -hmm. are kind of the 30,000 foot view. And then as my audience kind of skews with the podcast towards more industry, more professional, that podcast only segment becomes uh, key. And that's, again, where we can kind of get a little more into the weeds and talk about things that, you know, a, an enthusiast is probably, maybe they're not particularly interested in hearing, or if they are, they can simply go to the website and hear that particular episode on podcast if they wish. Okay. You mentioned metrics. What kind of tools do you use? I look at, you know, obviously um, there's a couple of different things. You know, social media is is one. Another would be, you know, the, the radio does track certain things somewhat anecdotally. And then the podcast distribution uh, platform that I use to publish the show, which then populates. So podcast is on most of the major podcast platforms based here in the US and 
there are some metrics that are provided that way as well. I found, uh, or haven't found actually, that any real insights in any of the metrics that I get access to, a lot of feedback that I use is purely anecdotal, which isn't necessarily, but it's certainly legitimate, but I don't know if it's it's speaking for the majority of people who are listening. So I tend to just focus on things that interest me. So if you find yourself interested to this podcast, it's because it's two podcasters talking about podcasting. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm truly interviewing him to learn. (laughs) You're more of a professional at it than I am, so uh, interested in learning it. So uh, you talked about the title of Spirits, but you also talked about wine. You're a wine guy. You grew up in California. What's the balance in your show of uh, Wine to Spirits? Uh, That's a really good question as well. It's, It's pretty even across the board. Steve, we, we talk about wine on a fairly regular basis. We talk about spirits on a regular basis. We talk about those two would be the predominant as far as if we're talking about like specific products or areas that we talk about. It is a little more drink oriented than food oriented, but we do talk about culinary culture quite a bit here in New Orleans. Obviously, the way our culture integrates, you know, we talk with musicians. It's really easy to talk about food and drink with musicians. So I, I would say just to answer your question directly about wine versus spirits, it's it's probably about 50-50. But when you would put that in the overall deck of what it is that we talk about, you know, wine specifically or spirits specifically, each one's maybe 10, 15 percent. Right. Okay. And to anyone who hasn't been to New Orleans, you you need to go. I've been going there for 20 years or as long as Tales has been um, in existence and a couple of other trips here and there. But the food, the, the fun factor in New Orleans and the New Orleans attitude just makes it such a delightful city. Yes, it has its issues. It's below sea level. That's one. <laughs> but you want great food in America? Guaranteed you can get it in New Orleans and do get off the beaten path. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So let's focus a little bit more about wine. What kind of stuff are you interested in wine in general? And then talking about Italian wines particularly, are there subjects or regions or anything that's mostly interests you? Yeah. You know, that's a really good question also. My background, Steve, at least in, in this world, comes from wine uh, more than spirits or food in particular. Uh, my parents had a small vineyard in the San Francisco Bay Area. I consulted and worked in the wine industry in California for a number of years, ran tasting rooms out there, worked with a lot of mom and pop wineries, worked with the Sauvignon Blanc varietal pretty directly for a few years, consulted for a couple wine regions, just stuff like that. So I have a pretty broad wine background and more of my wine background, I think, comes from the production and winery side than it does, you know, certainly not the service side as far as, you know, being a Somali. I would always joke with people, I kind of don't need to do my sommelier because I've been around it most of my life in one facet or another. And I'll always tell people, I joke with them, like if I'll, I'll, t- I'll do a taste and I may not be able to nail exactly where it comes from, but I can tell you how it's made, <laughs> you know? So, you know, I, I just kind of come from, you know, I think in California and, you, and I think probably in Italy, I'm speculating. I know in France, having spent a lot of time there, I think in a lot of parts of the United States, New Orleans being a good example, you know, like a sommelier is maybe kind of at the top of the heap, whereas where I come from, it's grower, it's winemaker, and then maybe sommelier in the pecking order of things. And I kind of ran in the grower winemaker circles more. And that really just sort of informs my my wine attitudes and, and wine tastes. To the second part of your question about Italian wines, I think I was telling you this before I love Italian wines in, in many instances. It's one of the most confusing countries and still remains that way to me, just because of the the, the Appalachian system, 
how that's changed in in recent years. I think it's become a lot easier to understand than it used to be. It was crazy, you know, 15, 20 years ago, at least from my perspective, to be able to understand the different regions, what, you know, grapes could and could not be used, what DOC meant, what DOCG meant, all that good stuff. And But I'm finding, especially now that we're seeing I think a broader diversity of Italian wines in the market, especially here in New Orleans. Uh, I love a lot of Alto Adige stuff. I love the stuff from Veneto. There's some beautiful Sauvignons coming from Northern Italy that I really like. A lot of great stuff from Sicily. I will will always drink a good Nero if I can find one. I think one of the toughest parts with Italian wines for people to understand, and I could even give you an anecdote that your listeners might appreciate. There's so much stuff that can be really confusing that comes into the U.S. market from Italy that is purportedly geared towards the U.S. market. And to to tell you this very short story specifically, please do. I had an Italian winemaker on, this was years ago. I can't remember if it was, he might've even met him on, excuse me, on my friend's show that I was hosting. And, And I am perfectly sensitive to people who speak English as a second language. And this person, this was definitely the case, but a pretty good English speaker. And he kept talking about the wines they were making for the U.S. market. And he kept saying, you know, saying that using the term sweet, we were talking about residual sugar and these wines, I was tasting them and these wines were clearly in that four, five, 6% RS kind of range. So pretty sweet. And, you know, he kept talking about it. Well, we did, you know, we do this in Italy because this is what we like in Italy. And there was a sort of like, this is better kind of thing, but we kind of make this schlock for you in the US. <laughs> and it's sweet because that's what all y'all love over there. And I kind of kept trying to steer the conversation away from that because one, I get at a certain price point in a certain market space, that is absolutely true. But I think when you're talking, especially to the audience on my show, and even if it was my friend show, his audience, that's not what they want to drink. And so it was uh, kind of a confusing conversation there for a little while. And I think that confuses the consumer and the listener sometimes too. I know I'll go buy a random bottle of Italian wine at Total Wine once in a while, and it's really hit or miss whether I'm going to like it or not. Hey, you really have a good point there. And I, I think there's this lack, well, I know it, lack of understanding of the U.S. market. A lot of the people that we deal with are growers, not necessarily, you know, wine marketers or wine sellers. And um, the expectation, because in their home market, they sell wine in supermarkets and bodegas and all over the place. And we're so much more controlled and only grocery in some states. They have a different, different or inaccurate perception of how the U.S. market works. Uh, two, two points I want to make of what you just said. One is for those who, uh, who didn't catch it, you said all y'all. So there's the Southern expression, y'all, which means you people. And all you all is the plural of y'all, right? So there's yeah. y'all, and then there's all y'all. It can be. And y'all y'all can be plural also. All y'all kind of ends up being uh, like, uh, wow, well, it's, it's a really good, you know, it's funny because I'm not, I'm from California. I've just adopted the speaker being here for so long. All y'all is sort of like addressing to this larger group and getting a broader set of attention, I guess is maybe a way to to put it. And every once in a while when you're saying emphasis on it, you might say, hey, I'm telling you all this. Hey, listen, all y'all, I'm trying to tell you something. <laughs> I got you. So in Spanish, there's eso, este, esta, right? There's a, this, that kind of nearby, and then that far away. Yeah, exactly. And then in Spanish, there's also al fondo, which is my favorite, which literally means in the background, like al fondo, it's, ba- it's like yonder. That's how I translate al fondo. <laughs> And you're like, yonder. Okay, I get it. That way somewhere. <laughs> but we digress. Back to the point you made about PR agencies. That, that raised an interesting question in my mind. I mean, I, I came out of PR. I owned a PR agency. 
Um, and I certainly work with PR agencies, for PR agencies, own PR agencies. Do you have advice to people? You mentioned one earlier, but you have some more general advice to people in the PR business who hmm, maybe this is their first job out of college. They may have majored in journalism. Um, PR has changed. We no longer have, you know, wine magazines or certainly not as many as we used to. The functional PR has changed. Do you have any advice to uh, new to the world PR practitioners in the wine and spirits industry? Italian Wine Podcast. Brought to you by Mama Jumbo Shrimp. That's a really good question. I I think my primary piece of advice, Steve, would be no. If you're talking, if you're trying to connect with a media outlet like myself, right, on behalf of a client, say who's a producer, if that's our dynamic, know who it is that you're talking to, because I get uh, I get stuff constantly in my inbox on a daily basis, the occasional phone call. Would you be interested in talking to so and so for five minutes? And it's like, you need to go look at what it is that I do. I don't talk to anybody for five minutes. And I, I'm not saying I'm, I'm king of the castle here or anything like that, where you need to you know, entirely change what your, your approach or your system is for dealing with media outlets, but do know who it is that you're talking to and what it is that they do before you go pitch something. And, and then also understand what it is that they require from you as a show, as a media outlet to get the point across. And so like I was talking about earlier, if you can't send me somebody who can speak at length about the topics at hand, then you're sending me the wrong person. And I think you need to be able to understand, you know, what the show is about, what they're trying to accomplish. And I'll say this, this might sound a little bit harsh and, and you know this coming from the PR world, you know, the, the, the PR world, and this is in, in just my own personal view, PR companies need to always keep themselves relevant and part of the equation. And I think in this day and age where with the internet, with other ways to reach out to people, you know, I can go directly to a winery. I can go directly to a distiller and and get them on board with doing my show if I want to. And I do do that quite often. PR companies serve a purpose to me and that they may bring things to my attention that wouldn't be on my radar, which is fantastic. They can sometimes handle logistics for me, which takes some things off my plate. So understanding that that's the value. But then sometimes things creep a little bit too far into, can you, as I said, can you provide us a list of questions? Can you do this? What, what's the question going to be here? Blah, blah, blah. Can we get a pre-listen before you publish? <laughs> All that kind of, exactly. That's a really good one. And the answer is absolutely flat out no. And, you know, I will ask the questions to my guest and I'm not providing them to you other than a brief outline of what it is I'd like to talk about. Now, I have found over recent years that PR companies are definitely more skilled in understanding of that. And I don't have, I don't butt my head against that nearly as much as I used to. Well, that's good to hear. Yeah. I, I, I think one of the issues I see, and I was alluding to it earlier with uh, that you get a lot of kids fresh out of school. This is their first job. Like in the olden days, they used to come to New York and they would start as salesmen for salespeople for magazines. Like, you know, they come out of a, a seven sister school and they would get a job with good housekeeping or something. I'm dating myself, I guess. But what I've tried to teach my people is, and the way I write and the way I do this show is, interview for the audience, not the client. That your job is not necessarily just to come get publicity for the client, but it needs to be to make the brand relevant to the audience that whoever you're talking to, that's what you're trying to uh, exploit is their existing audience. And their loyalty lies to the interviewer or the publisher or whoever that person is. If you fit into that dynamic, as you said, then all of a sudden it's valuable content. 
if it's just promotional content, it's clear as a bell. And it's, uh, I guess I am criticizing, there's a number of things on AM radio I still hear where 30 seconds with so-and-so or 60 seconds with so-and-so, and they're clearly paid ads. You know, that somebody is just doing. Uh, yeah. You know, Steve, I mean, like we see that um, on like the, the morning, uh, the national morning shows like the Today Show. I mean, those those things are all entirely paid product placement that goes on. And sometimes there's some valuable information that can come out of that. But my my audience wants more information. My audience wants a deeper dive into these topics. If we're talking about Italian wine, specifically, they're going to want to know where it comes from. They're going to want to know the style. They're going to want to know how it's made. The enthusiast portion of the audience is going to want to know what it's going to pair with. And on the industry side audience, you know, they're going to want to know things like price point and also how it's going to perform with food. Can I serve this by the glass? Is this something that's got to be sold by the bottle? And I think one of the things that we know too that uh, is really required these days a lot is hand selling. And you know, hand selling wine, especially from small producers, is absolutely critical. And I view the show kind of playing a little bit of a role in that is that we're bringing oftentimes small producers and independent folks and things to the fore and helping them sort of hand sell. And because my audience is a lot of industry people, I'm providing information to gatekeepers like bartenders, beverage directors, restaurant managers that are the people that actually hand sell and very often introduce you to a particular product that you may then seek, you know, try and go and find at a bottle shop somewhere after you've had it, you know, at a bar or at a restaurant. Yeah, I think uh, I distinguish between consumer and trade PR that you have different audiences. You have different messages. You have different interest levels. What surprises me is it used to be you would count impressions. That was the only metric that we had. So that was the metric we used, even though it was useless. And then reports to the clients were going into the billions. And then you were just chasing things. And then you come to things like Pinterest and all of these other ones that you're seeing orders of magnitude increases in reach. I mean, I've heard Vivino reaches 20 million people a month. I have no idea if that's true. I do know that the circulation for Impact Magazine, for example, is roughly around 18 to 20,000. And that sounds reasonable for the trade. Very well-read, very well-respected trade magazine. But those people have very different interests, both in subject matter and also how it's covered. And I don't necessarily mean unbiased, but I do mean objectively. The people are, my listeners, from what I hear back again, anecdotally, is they're interested in hearing the business side of things as opposed to the brand promotional thing. Why did you do this? What did this get you in the marketplace? How did it position you to improve distribution, give retailers more margin, have better presence online? And that leads me to the next question of we've had this sea change from print publications, and I'm really dating myself there, to social media and things that are no longer subscription-based and are much more conversation-based, if not in live time and not even in real time, but they are you know offline asynchronous conversations, but they're conversations. And, and there I'm talking about destination wine sites. My strategy, I tell people is don't make people come to you, your website, for example. No one's going to come to your website. They'll have to come once and then they'll find it. They're not going to find what they want there. So they'll go somewhere else, go where they're already gathered. So there's some some sites like VinePair, which reaches a whole lot of newbies and Vivino, which also come now combines selling and Wine Searcher, which is a trade tool, but consumers have learned to do it, especially because they have the label recognition technology. How is that changing the business from the perspective of a 
information provider journalists such as yourself? I think, you know, the maybe a short answer is that, you know, the point scoring system by Robert Parker doesn't have anywhere near the gravitas that it used to. And that's good. I think one of the challenges now is being able to filter out, you know, before we were kind of uh, held hostage by people like Parker, these sort of behemoths, and it was it was basically him scoring his, you know, the reaction to his palate. And we know what his style was and so on and so forth, and which I still don't can't really rectify to the French wine stuff. But anyway. But we digress. I agree with you, but keep going. <laughs> <laughs> and, and now I think, you know, now it's sort of, it also, you know, kind of dating myself, it reminds me of being in university before the internet and then being in graduate school when the internet was still kind of around. We had to go from being able to dig to actually find valuable resources that told you something you know, in the in the bowels of the archives of your university library to then in a few short years later, being able to sift through what's absolute garbage and schlock and and get to, to like the real deal. And so I think one of the challenges and how it's changed a lot is now there is so much information out there by people that are true professionals all the way down to avid enthusiasts, down to people who don't know diddly about diddly that are putting stuff out there and being able to wade through a lot of that, I think is a huge challenge to consumers. I do think that there can be strength in diversification, like using social media, like using what your friends say that they like, like, you know, sourcing not just from Robert Parker, but sourcing information from multiple outlets, I think can be great. There are, to answer your question, there's just so many different sources for information. It's picking and choosing what it is that's valuable to you and steers you in the direction that you want to go in. I think we've actually really, in a weird sense, put more of a burden on the consumer in this regard. However, the problem then is the consumer might be greatly misinformed or miss a whole amount of stuff that's out there by virtue of just chasing down one source or the other. I'm not sure if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And it's a, it's a parallel to whether you listen to CNN or Fox News or where, where you get your news that, that that's kind of uh, defines the bias uh, of, of the thing. Well, you mentioned Robert Parker. There's a great saying. I haven't heard it in a long time because he hasn't had that level of um, dominance over the industry. But it used to be that if you got over 90 on Parker, you can't buy it because it's it's all sold out. And if it gets below 90, you can't sell it. Exactly. Because nobody wants it. It's the, the kiss of death. That's no true specifically, but I think directionally it is. When you talk to a lot of people, the whole idea about dumbing everything down to points, there's positives and negatives for all of that stuff. But it is a tool and it's one tool. So taking that idea, if you want to base it on, uh, on points, how can a brand maximize the value of a podcast interview? If, they, if you reach out to them or however someone is found and you now have somebody, you're doing the podcast interview, what can that entity, whether it's a winery, whether it's a spirit company, whether it's an importer, distributor, whatever it happens to be, how can they use or leverage that or make it better? For everybody. I, you know, again, kind of one of the key points that we made, which I think relates is, is know the audience and that's up to the PR company and then do your research. If you're a guest, you know, what show that you're going on, say you're a winemaker, go look at the show that you're going on and see what it is that they do and who it is that they're, that they're talking to. But nobody does that. <laughs> I didn't do it for interviewing you. And I'm the one who <laughs> proselytizes the same thing. <laughs> to me, look, spending, if somebody spent, if you're the PR agency, then it's mandatory. Sure. But even if you're Steve, if you're the guest and you're a winemaker, I'm not saying go back and spend three hours listening to my last three shows. Just go look at my social media or go look at my website and see the fact that my episodes are an hour long. See the fact that I have 
one guest or one set of guests around one topic on the show, that, those are two key pieces of information that you know right away and, and, and really not that hard to suss out. And then just go click through and look at the last 10 titles of my episodes and see what it is that I talk about. Okay, and good answer, and it, it addressed the how to prepare for that. The, the question I'm really asking here is, how can a brand, forget the PR agency, how can a brand improve the benefit or results of being interviewed on a show or having the visibility, bad choice of word, audibility, People who are listening to the show, how, how can they leverage that in a commercial way? It's, it's very important. And I know this is even almost becoming cliche because we talk about millennials and these sorts of things that are driving a lot of the new media and podcasts and so on and so forth. Don't tell me about your points. Tell me about how you make it. Tell me about how your, what your story is. Now, I'm going to temper that a little bit because I think we're starting to find pushback on the quote unquote story, uh, these sort of dusty origin stories that are out there. And we start seeing Bacardi commercials of, you know, walking against the crowd. It's what's supposedly the Cuban revolution, maybe, or whatever the hell that is that they're talking about in their commercials. Don't give me BS. Just tell me what it is that you do. Now, I think a lot of people, you know, there's so much stuff out there and everybody has an origin story. Everybody has this, has that. Tell me what, tell me what's in your bottle. Tell me what it is that, that, you know, that, what it is that you make, how you, and this is in the case of my show, how you approach winemaking. What's the style you're going for? How do you achieve the style that you're going for? Now, one of the things that, and if I can address this briefly, that we talk a lot about on the show, we talk a lot about social issues in the hospitality industry. And when we talk about my audience as being serious enthusiasts and in industry, I do see there's a significant overlap. And you were talking about this earlier, Steve, a little bit, that serious enthusiasts want to know how the wine is made, right? They want to know how long it's spent in barrel. They want to know if you did a you know, uh, malolactic fermentation on your white. They want to know these different things. And so do, you know, serious enthusiasts and professionals want to know that. So, you know, talking about the methodology of how you made something, I think is absolutely fantastic. I think talking about how like sustainability is a topic we talk a ton about on the show, be it human capital and inclusivity in the hospitality industry, but we talk about sustainability in the vineyard all the time. And if, you know, if that's part of like how you're approaching your farming, how you're approaching your resource management, how you work with your growers. Are you buying from local growers? Are, you know, is your, is your local grower your uncle? You know, these kinds of things that I think are really interesting that tell, there's a lot of synonymous juice out there these days. And so, you know, why should I care about what yours is? And lots of times the differentiation is simply they like the personality or they like the story. Sure. Like, like uh, Randall Graham. <laughs> I mean, I drink his wine because I think he writes well and funny. Yeah. And I mean, and look, cause, I mean, and we know this, I can, I can pull 10 Pinot Grigios from Italy off a shelf and a lot of them are going to be roughly the same price and roughly the same flavor profile. Right. And you know, what's going to catch my attention is, you know, maybe what it is that you're actually doing in your vineyard and what it is that you're doing to work with growers. And I mean, I'm not saying that everybody does that, but if that's part of your story, then, then tell us what happens behind the scenes. And I think that's a really key thing. I found that people really like to know the behind the scenes aspect of this. You know, if you had a challenging harvest, talk about why it was challenging and what you did to make a better bottle out of that challenging harvest. I think those are really good points. I, I had some experience recently with, with a winery and we were trying to get them to tell us, tell me their story. And the traditional ways of going about it wasn't there. 
But then we went through the how you do things and I'm asking questions why, and they're doing some things that harken back hundreds, if not thousands of years because of where it was produced in Italy and so forth. And they absolutely do have a story. Everybody has a story because every wine is different from any other wine and every estate is absolutely different, has a unique story, even than the one that's next door. Think of Chateau Mouton and Chateau d'Armillac. They're right next to one another, both very different uh, wines and very different in price. So, but what it boils down to is less about the story, although that's the headline for everybody. It's what the listener is really looking for. And the listener is looking, in my mind, to discover something they didn't know. So it may be new to them, but well-known to everybody else. But if it's new to them and you can present it in a way that, I hate to say this, but like USA Today dumps it down to some basic factoids that they're able to restate. And when they're sharing it with their friends and instead of saying jammy or gooseberry or whatever this happens to say, they have a, a, a different trellising system. And here's what it does to great production and concentration flavor, whatever it happens to be. So it's less about the story than the shareability of information or the discoverability of information. And then the sharing part of it takes place online. But it's, there's got to be the sequence of sharing an uninteresting story or a non-unique story is like yelling into the wind. Yeah, you know, Steve, I think you, you hit on a couple of really key things there. You know, one is so like your, how you go about trellising your vines, uh, how you go about providing... Um, shade and and sun cover to your fruit through the growing season these things i find that especially for my audience people find that really interesting because what i've given them is why the wine tastes like it does and there's a gap here that happens and this is the second point that i wanted to make here you know one of the barriers that people have when you come on a podcast or a tv show or a radio show whatever or, or read an article for that matter is there's a visceral aspect, obviously, to tasting. And we're, what we're talking about is we want juice in people's mouths, right? I mean, through this process. And I can't deliver that to you. I can only push that so far. I can taste online with my guests, which I guess, which I do quite often, do kind of a live tasting and, and describe what I'm tasting, maybe throw out a food pairing idea or two that might work with it that strikes me at that moment. But the best that I can actually do is give you a description and talk about how it tastes. And then I can tell you through my guests, how it's made and why it tastes the way it does through the production methodology, through the particular aspects of that vintage or whatever the case may be. So I can kind of arm you with all the information that you need to know leading up till the point where you actually have to have the juice in your mouth. I can't do that for you. And that's a challenge. So it's, you know, if you're a guest, if you're a winemaker or a producer. So to me, it is bringing all of these things, these characteristics of how I made it, why it tastes, how it does. Here's my story. Here's how I got from A to B to C, not only with the wine, but with my winery. And, you know, we're going to put the picture of the bottle on Instagram. And then maybe when you got to the store, if you happen to recognize it, you buy it. And then there's going to be some recall of what it is that we talked about on the show of the taste aspects of this or the whole story behind it and hopefully making that connection. And that's, we're fighting that gap there always a little bit I always kind of find it really funny, and I always kind of will say this every once in a while when I'm tasting something really good. I almost, this will sound really weird, I almost feel bad for the listeners so I'll be tasting something amazing, and I'll go, wow, this is amazing, and I keep saying this is amazing, which is incredibly subjective. Explain to them, here's why it's, and they're not tasting it. You'll never get there. Yeah. Exactly. And you poor sod, you're actually not tasting this with me. It sucks to be you kind of thing. And, <laughs> and, and you know, and I got to make sure that I don't, 
portray it that way. It's got to be portrayed as enthusiasm. And then here is why you may want to go out and discover it. Um, you know, we will always put links in our show notes to the producer, some bottle shots occasionally, things like that. So we give some visual identification and places you can go online after the fact to go actually track the product down uh, if you want to. Uh, and and that's as far as I can generally take it. But I would say to your listeners and to producers out there, understanding that we can only push this up until the point that somebody gets their juice in their glass. So is is that the end? The end goal of of, of something like this would be the, the, if you get get somebody interested enough in it, the question they're going to ask is where can I buy it? And that's why e-commerce sales of wine is so important. Uh, and this we could talk about this for a couple of hours. But if you if you wet their appetite for this wine, they want to consummate that level of interest, and there's no better time than now to do it. And that's why this label recognition technology on Wine Searcher and the Vino, I think, is so important because you're talking to people at the precise moment in time when a they're interested in the product by virtue of the fact that they just took a picture of the label, and two, since they're holding the bottle, they can probably buy it. So that's when you want to reach them, not to get them to come to your website, which still may be 10 steps away from actually doing a purchase. So to that end, do you have any relationships or do you send people to particular uh, e-com websites to find particular wines? Do you do the research beforehand? Do you ask your uh, the interviewee for that information before a show and so forth? That's a good question. Um, I, I To the first part of your question, I deliberately do not because I don't, especially and this gets a little, I might even contradict what I said earlier about sponsorship and these things. I'm not in the business of promoting a particular platform over another, especially if they're not doing anything to keep me in business. So I'm not, I'm not going to necessarily do that. I will ask my guests and this, for me, this can be a little particular because as I mentioned, Half my audience roughly is in New Orleans and half my audience is not. And every once in a while, I will remind people because I'll say, oh, you know, what I'll say is tell us where we can find you on the street and where we can find you online is my typical question. Oftentimes, I'm referring to an establishment like a restaurant or a bar when I say that. But very often, I do actually just like if they're a winemaker or a spirits producer, I do try and drive them to their social media or their website because presumably in on those mechanisms, they will then tell you or you can go find and I, you hit something really important. It's going to take three or four clicks, which you lose people, but you can go find who the local retailer is in your area off their website or their distributor's website, whatever the case may be. And that's fine. Uh, I will occasionally allow people to say, um, especially if it's a very specialty oriented product, what bottle shops in New Orleans and what what e-commerce platforms you can find it on or what bars have it on their back bar if we're talking about a spirit, something like that. Highlight a couple things. But in general, I don't get too specific with that because my audience is too broad geographically to do that. And I also, you know, I'm happy to support local independent bottle shops because they're friends of mine and I believe in local business. Uh, but again, as I said, with big e-commerce platforms or even big re retailers, I'm just not in the business of, not that I, I know somebody buys something there. I'm just not in the business of doing that. If somebody wants to say, you can find my wine at Total Wine, great. A friend of mine once told me a joke, and I've said it before, but I'll repeat it now for new people who are listening. We get asked all the time, what's the best bottle of wine? And, and his, his answer was, the one I just sold. At the end of the day, we're in the business of somebody's got, there's got to be a transaction. Somebody's got to make some money and I'll get a couple of shekels somehow off of that too. And we can all stay in this business. Okay, we're running out of time, more run out of time, even though there's an infinite amount of time on, on the internet. But I like to end my interviews with, with a question of what's the big takeaway? We talked about a lot of different things, but is there one thing 
that somebody listening to this, thinking that they're mostly in the trade, can take away and put to use immediately, find valuable and make useful in their work or their daily life? Yeah. You know, Steve, I'll hearken to one one of the things that we talked about is familiarize yourself with what's out there. Uh, And if you're going to a particular media outlet to pitch them on something, or if you're going to be a guest of a particular media outlet, know who it is that you're dealing with. And there are ways, in my view, you don't have to go, like I said, listen to my last three episodes. You can spend five minutes on a cursory look at what it is that I do to figure out what it is that I do. It's not a mystery. And so know what you're getting yourself involved in and know who you're talking to. And then, you know, just plan to what comes out of your mouth accordingly. And, you know, if you're doing something short, then get your key points in. If you're doing something like with me, then be prepared to tell your story and be prepared to ask questions about, you know, uh, how you trawlest your grapes or let's talk about UV light exposure. You know, be ready for that question because you're going to get it on this particular program. You know, you boil that all down. It's the same advice I gave my children. Do your homework. (laughs) (laughs) Do your homework. My guest today has been Brian Diaz of uh, NOLA Drinks Show with Brian Diaz, NOLA being New Orleans, Louisiana, for those of you who aren't familiar with New Orleans. I've, I've learned how to pronounce this. It. not New Orleans. It's New Orleans. You have to say the W, New Orleans. Or New Orleans, if you've been here for, you know, a native for a long time. Uh, but thank, thank you for being on my show. And uh, for those of you who are interested, uh, Brian's going to be introduced in um, interviewing me on his show. So tell us again about your show and where they can find it. Absolutely, Steve. Yeah, looking forward to uh, having uh, returning the favor next week or returning the punishment, depending on how we look at this uh, next week. But uh, the Nola Drinks Show, if you just go to Nola Drinks, N-O-L-A-D-R-I-N-K-S dot com, uh, you'll you can find our show. You can find uh, connect to the different podcast platforms that we're on. Subscribe where you want. Uh, we're at Nola Drinks on Facebook and Instagram, and at Nola Drinks One, the number one on uh, Twitter. Instagram's a really good place to go. We do things like featured drinks where we share recipes by noted bartenders of cocktails, stuff like that. So there's some between the lines stuff. And uh, we also are part of the Nitty Grits Podcast Network, which is the podcast network of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. So if you go to southernfood.org, you can find out a lot more there as well. This is Steve Ray saying thank you for listening this week. Tune in again next week, and we will have another interesting interview on Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People. We hope you enjoyed today's episode brought to you by the Wine to Wine Business Forum 2022. This year will mark the ninth edition of the forum to be held on November 7th and 8th, 2022 in Verona, Italy. Remember, tickets are on sale now. So for more information, please visit us at winetowine.net. I'm Joy Livingston, and I am the producer of the Italian Wine Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are the only wine podcast that has been doing a daily show since the pandemic began. This is a labor of love, and we are committed to bringing you free content every day. Of course, this takes time and effort, not to mention the cost of equipment, production, and editing. We would be grateful for your donations, suggestions, requests, and ideas. For more information on how to get in touch, go to italianwinepodcast.com.